am I going to say or do when I get up there? And, uh, and I, hope, I hope this won't be awkward. That'll be awkward. Um, <clears throat> I, hope, I hope this won't be awkward, but I, I just want to say a special word of thanks to the Atwood family. You know, that as I was, I was thinking about Becky playing and Sam playing and Dave leading and Gracie doing whatever Gracie does, and uh, um, your presence and your involvement and your leadership here at Berean could not be replaced in the same way. So thank you for all that you guys do. Go ahead. It is a blessing. So, Nathan did most of my introduction. I think it's kind to introduce yourself when you're speaking to people. Uh, so, my name is Jim Kluth. I've been on the faculty at Schaefer Academy for 27 years now. And I've been at this congregation for about the same, same length of time. And... Uh, over at Schaefer, I teach Latin and English, two of the thriller subjects I know. Um, and I'm married to Tara, who's right over there. And she and I have four children who run between the ages of almost 22 and 15. And three of them are still here this morning, but the oldest one is in Knoxville, Tennessee, getting his adult life started there. So, wow, what a time. Um, but as a teacher, it's my job sometimes to choose curriculum, and to pick a new curriculum for something. And you'd think in the Latin department you wouldn't have to do that very often because Latin hasn't really changed in the last 1,500 years. But sometimes somebody comes up with a curriculum that presents it better does a little bit better. And so a few years ago, I bit the bullet and I got a new curriculum for the upper school. And so I'm, <laughs> so I'm paging through there. And, um, you know, there's sentences about goats, sentences about pigs, and there's sentences about Oswald, the hero uh, who slays all the dragons and every princess in every town is attracted to him. And then I saw this one. He said, men are always evil without the gospel. Well, that's a bold categorical statement. Men are always evil without the gospel. And I began to think about it, this proposition by Natalie Monette. And the next question I asked is, is it true? Are men always evil without the gospel? And that's one of the big questions that we're going to address this morning in this message. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the content. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and to receive guidance and wisdom and instruction from you. We ask that uh, as we focus our hearts specifically on you this morning, that we would come away strengthened and encouraged and with a peace that passes understanding, guarding our hearts and minds. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I think if you went to the average person in our culture and asked them, are men always evil without the gospel? You, I bet you'd get a variety of answers. First off, some people would need you to define the word gospel, which come to think of it, could be a good opportunity for evangelism. But 
Others would immediately disagree with the statement and tell you that there are lots of good people in the world, lots of great folks, and if only you knew where to look and how to see them. So who's right? Natalie? Or the nameless American in this example? In order to answer that question, we're going to have to look at what God says about people and their standing before him. We're going to have to open the only book that is authoritative on every subject that it addresses. Now, if we go back to Genesis, we read that God created everyone and everything, and that he declared his creation good, morally good, and in every other way. God created Adam and Eve innocent and gave them a rich, beautiful relationship with himself and each other, which they promptly wrecked by rebelling against him and falling into sin. Within an instant, everything changes. The humans are now hiding and afraid of God. Being naked isn't so much fun anymore. And they reap consequences for their actions. For the woman, it's extreme pain in childbirth. And for the man, it's painful toil and sweat that he's going to have to endure as he tries to grow food to take care of himself and his wife and his future children. And it's important for us to remember that these problems that we still experience are not the original design. They are the result of the rebellion and the failure by our first parents. And it doesn't take too many generations to see the results of the fall. Genesis chapter 4 deals with the second generation of humans in which Adam and Eve's first kid murders their second kid over what? Basically, the condition of their hearts. You see, Abel loved God and Cain tolerated God and ended up in jealousy and resentment of his brother and decided to move the, remove the goody-two-shoes from the family. Behaviors like this get summed up in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. That's how bad it was. So... Maybe it's better now. I mean, you read ancient history, and you read biblical history, and recorded there are all kinds of barbaric practices that the ancient peoples engaged in. For example, in ancient times, one tribe would go to war against another and conquer them and bring home many of the citizens of the other tribe as slaves. Well, that doesn't happen anymore, does it? Um... Yeah, it does. It's called human trafficking. An estimated 600,000 to 800,000 people are either sold or tricked into slavery around the globe every year. Well, that sounds bad. But in the ancient world, didn't, didn't people sacrifice their children to some god in the hoping to receive favor or blessing from him? Well, they did, as a matter of fact. God warned his Old Testament people in Leviticus 20 not 
to engage in the worship of Molech, who wanted child sacrifice as a part of the worship. It would be pleasant and comforting to say that this doesn't occur today until we remember that 60 million abortions have taken place in the United States alone since 1973. Incidentally, the year I was born. I'm sure you see where I'm going with this. I could give you statistics for rape and murder and rioting and all kinds of horrific crimes that take place, recorded and unrecorded all over the world. And that ignores the mundane stuff like jealousy, unkindness, impatience, and so forth. The record demonstrates that the human heart does incline towards evil. But somebody out there may not be convinced. Somebody right now is thinking, but my neighbor, but my coworker, but my Aunt Carolyn, they're so nice, and I don't see any, re- I don't see any evidence of a relationship with Christ in them. I don't think she's a believer in Christ. Is she evil too? She doesn't seem like it. And if you're asking that, I want to commend you. It's a great question, and I'm going to offer two answers to it. The first is a question of what makes someone good or evil in God's sight. Jesus sheds a little bit of light on this in Matthew 5:48, where uh, he's teaching, and then he sums up his teaching by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that verse is like a gut punch to anybody who wants to declare their own righteousness. See, Aunt Carolyn, she might be nice, but I guarantee you that she has not kept God's moral law without error. She has not loved God with her whole heart and her whole mind and her whole soul and her whole strength, and she has not loved her neighbor as herself, and neither have you and neither have I. And in fact, according to Jesus Those two commands, love the Lord with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself, those are what undergird the entire Old Testament law. And there's nobody in the building this morning and there's nobody walking around the neighborhood this morning who has kept those perfectly or honestly even come close. The other answer to this question about Aunt Carolyn, by the way, I just... I have to ask, does anybody have an Aunt Carolyn? Somebody? I saw one. Where is it? Oh, (laughs) it really is Atwood Day. All right. Um, So um, the other answer to this question deals with what we might call the side effects of Christianity. See, it's no secret that Jesus walked on earth 2,000 years ago, and that he lived, and then he died, and then he rose again from the dead. And the fact that he did that and that he had followers who took his teachings and then passed them on to more followers over time changed entire societies. And so even if Aunt Carolyn isn't personally a follower of Jesus Christ, she's been affected by 20 centuries of Christianity being woven all throughout Western civilization. And so the very culture that she was raised in includes ideas of Christianity, ideas such as the dignity and value of each human being, 
Ideas such as do unto others as you would have them do to you. Ideas such as self-restraint and modesty. The idea that your moral character is far more important than the amount of your possessions. Those ideas have been woven into the fabric of her life and her culture. If her culture had not come into contact with any of those ideas, Aunt Carolyn would probably be quite different. At one point, when Jesus was teaching in Galilee, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law traveled all the way from Jerusalem to ask him why his disciples didn't follow the tradition of the elders by washing their hands before they ate. What follows is what you might call Jesus owning the Pharisees. He ignores their question about human regulations um, and instead brings up uh, a a practice that they were involved in. I don't know if you remember this. They had a sneaky practice where they would take material resources that they had and then they would say that those resources were Corbin, devoted to God, and then because those resources were devoted to God, that meant that they didn't have to share with their elderly parents who might be in need. And so Jesus calls them out on this. um, And... He wraps it up by saying to the crowds, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. This is in Matthew 15. The disciples at this point are troubled because number one, Jesus has just upset the Pharisees, and number two, they don't understand what Jesus is saying either. And so in verse 15, Peter says, explain the parable to us. And I want, I want you to go there with me, grab your Bible, and go to Matthew 15, and we're going to look at Jesus' answer. Matthew 15, and we're starting, we're starting at verse 16. Matthew 15, 16. 15, 16. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Jesus is pretty clear about the source of evil in the world. He does not blame society. He does not blame the local Jewish government. He does not blame the Roman oppressors. He does not blame parents for whatever their failures might have been. He blames the heart. It's the very core of our being that sees the opportunity for something we want and concocts a plan and evil thoughts and resulting evil actions. Now, this is not to say that the evil inside one person doesn't often awaken the evil inside another person that until that moment lay dormant, but the fact that the evil was able to be aroused proves that it was indeed there. You may have heard theologians talk about the term total depravity uh, when they're addressing the, the, the human condition outside of Christ. Now, this term, term total depravity, does not mean 
that every person is as evil as they could be. Far from it. I acknowledge right here and right now that you could be a lot worse than you are. You could choose many more evil choices than you do. You could cause lots more injustice and lots more hurt on this world than you do. Right? So what it does mean... Oh, sorry. Um, you, could, you could cause all that, right? And Jesus acknowledged this in Luke chapter 11 when he brought up the ability of people that he had specifically identified as evil, right? He says, then you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. And then he goes into a specific example of that, right? He says, who, if their kid asks them for a fish, who's going to give your kid a snake? And the answer to that is nobody. No parent is going to give their kid something harmful when the child asks for something good. People, even in their fallenness, still retain some ability to do what is good and right. But back to total depravity. So total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be. Total depravity means that every aspect of your being is affected by sin. Your mind, your heart, your emotions, your will, your relationships, your relationship to the creation, even your relationship to yourself. The whole package has been damaged by sin. So the Bible as a whole, and Jesus in particular, doesn't give the slightest hope for you to be able to fix the moral mess that is you. Different groups in history, and in fact, every false religion, have basically made that attempt. The attempt to somehow attain moral goodness, or at least the feeling of moral goodness. So I think about the ancient Greek philosophy of Stoicism. Right? The idea that the highest wisdom, the greatest virtue, was aligning yourself with the divine reason such that you would be unaffected by pleasure or pain. The ironic part of Stoicism, of course, is that if you succeeded at your Stoicism, that would give you pleasure, and then you would have to deny that pleasure in order to be a good Stoic. And no matter how Stoic you were, it would never uproot the evil that was stuck there in your heart. The Apostle Paul identifies the same problem in a different way. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, he wrote, Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Christ crucified. That is the Bible's answer to every system of thought and every system that tries to deal with humanity's mess and the echoing emptiness in the human heart caused by our sin. The Bible says that God wanted to rescue us from sin, from having hearts that were in rebellion against him. And so he sent his own son to be the payment for our sin. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so instead of calling us to be better, be stronger, be more able to stand up against temptation, 
God calls us to do one thing, rest. Our job is to stop trying to tell God that we're going to be better, we're going to do better, and instead rest in the truth that Jesus was perfect in our place. He fulfilled the Old Testament law on our behalf. He walked in complete obedience to the Father and ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. In situation after situation, he depended upon God's plan for him, self, and humanity, even though that plan resulted in him being nailed to a Roman cross. And the righteousness that he earned in his complete obedience is credited to our account if our faith is in Christ. See, in God's sight, all of our sin has been cast on Jesus and all of Christ's righteousness has been applied to us. And that's why it's called the gospel, because the gospel means good news. See, if today is the first time that you've understood that Jesus' death and resurrection pays for your sins, it's definitely going to be good news to you. But here's the thing. It's also good news to those of us who have heard it hundreds or maybe even thousands of times before. See, the gospel remains good news that every time I apply it to my heart, every time I apply it to my emotions, it reminds me that there's a God who loves me, and it reminds me that my sins are dealt with and that I don't need to fear standing before a holy God. See, the gospel remains good news. It gives us the right standing before God, and it frees us from failures and burdens that perhaps we've carried too long. So the gospel has many benefits, so many that you could make an entire sermon series out of it. But for the rest of my time this morning, I'd like to focus on what the gospel does in the human heart. See, as soon as you come to faith in Jesus, as soon as you understand that your sins have been forgiven by a God who loves you. Something transformative happens inside of you. The Bible pictures it kind of like a heart transplant. Ultimately, looking forward to what would happen when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 36, starting at verse 24. God says to his people, For I will take you out of the nations... I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Notice that this is something God does in you. He removes your heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh, a heart that can respond to him and enjoy him and follow his decrees. This new redeemed heart has many qualities, but I'd like to offer you three before we finish our time together this morning. Number one, the believing heart has a new affection. 
The believing heart has a new affection. If you lived at all as an unbeliever before you came to Christ, you can probably remember at least some of what you were like back in those days. The truth is, you were driven by all kinds of passions, all kinds of pleasures, fears, and worries about shallow things. Your life may not have been falling apart, or it may have, but there was some nagging emptiness inside of you that somehow you were missing the most important, the most critical thing. But the central truth about the old life is that no matter how much good you did, it was all about you. You were the unqualified captain of your ship, and the affections of your stony heart were pointed squarely at yourself. Paul addressed what the old you was like in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That was your spiritual condition, but in contrast to that, Peter describes the affections of your new heart. Talking to believers in Asia Minor, he writes, Though you have not seen him, and that's Jesus, Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. <clears throat> According to Peter, our hearts have a new first love, the God who saved us. And this only makes sense. Jesus did the one thing for you that you absolutely could not do for yourself. He rescued you from sin and from the resulting wrath of God. The only logical response is love and gratitude. I remember being in my, early, or <laughs> my late 30s, my late 30s and early 40s, and I was starting to get into back problems. <clears throat> in fact, there was, there was a season one point, I think it was around 2010, that I was just in pain for weeks and weeks on end. And then uh, Evan and I were playing ball in the backyard, and he threw one over me, and I ran back and I got it, and I reached down and picked up that ball, and something in my back went back into the right spot. That was like, wow, I'm so much better. And that was temporary. And sure enough, the pain got worse, and a couple years went by, and uh, it got to the point where I was, I was terrified to sneeze, because every sneeze would result in a pulled muscle and destroyed mobility for days. Around the same time, my wife had some other symptoms, and so she decided to go to a chiropractor that we knew, and her symptoms got fixed. And they convinced me to go. Within a month, within a month, this talented, experienced professional had taken me from barely able to move to uh, 
within a few years after that, I started running for fun. Right? Well, my pain decreased by a factor of 10, and he cured health problems that I didn't even know that I had. And I can tell you, I have a lot of love and gratitude for this man. When I think of how crippled up and how debilitated I could be by this point, um, I get overwhelmed with thankfulness. And it's the same with Jesus Christ. When I think about how crippled up my soul could be today, when I think about how miserable the eternity facing me would be, I get overwhelmed with thankfulness to Jesus Christ because he's given me a new heart and he's given me a new affection. Number two, the believing heart has a new priority. Everybody's got priorities, some good, some bad. But the person who has come to trust in Christ has a new priority that overshadows all of the other priorities. As a Christ follower, your priority is bringing glory to God by loving him and by building his kingdom. You see, most kingdoms, you can look on a map and you can see there's the borders, right? So there's the borders of the kingdom and these are the people who live in the kingdom and they're the citizens of this kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom is different. He declared to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight for me. Now, Pilate was puzzled, but we don't have to be because we have an entire Bible full of teaching about the kingdom of God. It's what we're praying for when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, thy kingdom come. We're asking God to bring his kingdom. It's what Jesus said was more important than anything. It's the pearl of great price. It's the treasure hidden in a field that was worth selling everything, everything in order to buy it. It's the kingdom where I have my first citizenship. Now let me tell you, I'm proud to be an American citizen. But best case scenario, my American citizenship will only last another 50 years. Right? Paul wrote about the citizenship that I have from now until eternity. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so as kingdom residents, we have a new priority. And then number three, the believing heart has new empowerment. The Bible makes numerous bold, in-your-face claims. Have you ever thought about that? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a very fairly in-your-face claim. Okay? Bible makes bold claims all over the place. But one of the most interesting ones is that the Holy Spirit of the living God comes to dwell inside of you if you put your faith in Christ. God himself lives in you. That is amazing. <clears throat> and you can see how important this is by looking closely at Jesus and the disciples in Acts chapter 1. And remember, not long after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples were asking him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of, to Israel? And his answer is a complete change of subject. 
He says to them, this is Acts 1-7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice here that Jesus did not send his disciples to do anything in ministry until they had received the Holy Spirit. As soon as they were empowered and dwelt by the Spirit of God, they did all the things that were recorded in the book of Acts. If you read in an older Bible, the title on the book of Acts is The Acts of the Apostles. But some people have suggested that it would be much better to have it The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, Paul wrote to the Corinthians that when he was present with them, he didn't rely on eloquence or superior wisdom to offer them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, he writes, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power, 1 Corinthians 2.5. Again, we see here the emphasis on bringing the message of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit dwells in you. Paul will make that point quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, it's a little late in this message for a complete dissertation on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, so I will leave it at this. You are empowered for righteousness. You are empowered for godly living. You are empowered to be Jesus' witness from this moment until the day that you take your last breath. Because your new self is spiritually alive and it is drawing nourishment from the true and living God. And my father, may he rest in peace, was always generous with his opinions and he always hated sermons that didn't have a clear application. <clears throat> and I think it's it's interesting this morning that our, our guest uh, who played saxophone with Becky and his wife actually knew my father a number of years ago, we found out. Um, but he hated sermons that didn't have a clear application. So what do you do with a sermon like this one? Scott's last week, you remember Scott Mathis was here? Right? It was pretty clear what the application to that sermon was, right? It was a concrete, direct hit sermon. This one is a little more abstract. This one is asking you to think about your entire way of viewing the world. Focusing our minds on the big concepts that shape our thoughts and affections. See, in a culture that constantly tries to tell us that people are basically good, we might begin to believe that people are basically good if we didn't get reminded of what we were when we were outside of Christ. We were lost, we were helpless, and we were alienated. There's a reason Ephesians uses the word dead to describe people's spiritual condition outside of Christ. So I think this message could lead you to greater humility. If your heart was evil before you came to Christ, and it was, and you contributed nothing to your salvation, and you didn't, then the reminder that your heart is no longer controlled by evil can definitely lead to a greater focus on the Lord and less focus on yourself. 
And all of that leads to joy. See, your new heart is capable of even now tasting the joys of heaven as we read in the passage from 1 Peter. So, let's celebrate those things as we pray together. And we don't need to invite the worship team up because after I finish prayer, then uh, we'll enter into a time of communion. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that our entire worship, our entire conversation this morning has been about you. We ask that as we wrap up this message, that you would impress upon our hearts the things that you want us to keep, uh, that, that you would remind us that you're clear in your word that uh, outside of you, we have nothing spiritually good to offer. And so we thank you for Christ. We thank you for uh, the way that he transforms us, and we thank you for his Holy Spirit being at work even in this body and everywhere that your word is proclaimed this morning. So bless us as we continue to think about you and as we celebrate this ordinance that you've given us. In your name, amen.